1: Chapter 14, verses 12 through 26. It's on page 696 of your pew Bible. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters the teacher asks Where is my guest room Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready Make preparations for us there The disciples left went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told him told them So they prepared the Passover When evening came Jesus arrived at the 12 While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives.
2: There are a lot of times that we have special foods that help us remember things. Um, is Nathaniel, let me look find Nathaniel. There are a lot of great birthdays in July. Nathaniel, happy birthday, it's a little bit late. but on your birthday in earlier in July, did you have a special food or celebration to honor your birthday? he's shaking his head, yes. And was there? Shout out one or two of the foods or items that you had at your birthday. A little louder. Porcupine balls? Porcupine Porcupine meatballs, yeah. Awesome. One of my favorites. Okay. Um, Often there are people will bake something that is celebrated at birthdays. They'll bake, maybe they won't bake ice cream, but they'll have ice cream. Okay, awesome. They may bake pies or cakes. Um, John, at Christmas time, do you have a favorite food? I know it's just. A favorite? It's really hard to pick a favorite. Hard to pick a favorite. Name one, name something. Maybe not the favorite. One. Waffles? Okay. For Christmas. <laughs> Good. All right. So some foods, right? We start to think of a food, and we remember the celebration. Now, Nathaniel, right? We're going to focus in on his porcupine meatballs, ice cream. Uh huh. Um, let's see, Rebecca. Oh, your birthday's in December. Okay. Um, do you have? Do you bake? Is there something baked for you or prepared for you on a on a birthday? Carrot cake. Carrot cake? <laughs> We're getting hungry. Carrot cake. All right. These are things that help us remember. And eating is something that we do. Sometimes we do it three times a day. Sometimes we do it a lot of times a day. We eat, right? And sometimes we don't even think much about it, but we eat. But Jesus used this common idea of eating to help us remember something. And so what he did... and. Um, Molly read this for us in the scripture today. They got ready to celebrate the Passover. And the Passover, remember, was when the angel had passed over the people of Israel. And so they were remembering that. But Jesus used this meal to take a loaf of bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And then he offered to his disciples, who were celebrating with him around table, and they took the bread and started to eat. But as they did, Jesus said this to help them remember. He said, this is my body that's broken for you. And they're still kind of shaking their heads and wondering what's going on. All in this last several weeks, right, Jesus had been talking about suffering and dying, and they're like, what is Jesus talking about? And then he takes this loaf of bread at our Passover celebration and breaks it and says, this is my body broken for you. And then... Stephen, do you remember this? Okay, go ahead. And So he's remembering. What do you remember about this thermos, Stephen? Grandpa Grandpa George's thermos. This was our our hunting thermos, and uh, it's got a lot of memories. So Stephen and I take this hunting. It doesn't keep things hot as long anymore, but it's still got Grandpa's cork in it, and Jesus took the cup of wine at the table, and he took the wine and he said to his disciples, this is my blood that's shed for you, take it and drink. And so the disciples had for them this very tangible, this very thing that you touch and that you do all the time, right? We eat bread almost once a day, in those days especially. Sometimes today, we, it's not every day. We may miss a day without bread, but we eat bread. And we drink wine or juice. And Jesus took this and said, this is my body, and this is my blood that I'm giving for you so that as Molly read, so that and we sang in the songs today our sins can be forgiven. They can be covered over. And so we'll have a chance today as pastor preaches to remember to think not about Stephen and Mark's father-in-law or grandpa's thermos but about Jesus' blood shed for us and Jesus' body broken for us. So we use our youngest men and women, we use the word, you'll hear moms and dads talking about communion. And we also call it the Last Supper because it was the last supper that Jesus had before he died. Or the Lord's Supper because Jesus is Lord and he had this bread and wine at his, at his supper. So you'll hear us talking about communion. We are communing. We are joining together with the other believers to remember what Jesus has done. And that's our story for today of the bread and the wine.
0: I was wondering what you're going to do with that. Are you going to drink that juice? <laughs> it's good. Well, good morning. Great to great to see everyone here today. I feel a little bit weird. I've never preached in the wilderness before, um, but uh, but it's kind of cool. It looks like we're uh, we're ready for uh, VBS starting tomorrow. So if you're a kid or if you have kids, I hope that you'll come and, and participate in that. Well, we've been doing a, a men's Bible study on Wednesday nights. I've referenced it a couple of times, but this last uh, this last Wednesday night. I had talked to, we were talking about the fact that the early church was persecuted. And a lot of times when the early church was persecuted, some of it was based on misunderstandings. Uh, some of it was based on truth. In other words, even if they did understand, they probably would have been persecuted anyway. But there are a few common accusations that were levied against early Christians. Uh, one of them was that they practiced incest. Uh, incest right? Um, Can you imagine why they would, uh, why anybody would think that? Why why were they accused of that, that they were incestuous? Because they called each other brothers and sisters, even people who were married to each other, right? And so the Romans misunderstand and they say, well, you know, what's going on with these guys? They're really weird. Uh, They were accused of being atheists. Why might they be accused, accused of being atheists? Because they didn't believe in the Roman pantheon of gods. They refused to worship the emperor. They refused to worship Zeus and and all of the other gods that were around. They were accused of being unpatriotic. Why would they be accused of being unpatriotic? Well, because they refused to swear allegiance to the Roman Empire. Um, and, uh, and so they were accused of being unpatriotic. In fact, that was kind of part of what Jesus was crucified for, was he was seen as a rival king to the emperor. And, uh, and so that's why the Romans didn't want him around. And finally, they were accused of being cannibals. Do you know why they were accused of being cannibals? It's because they said that they ate the flesh and drank the blood of their founder, this guy named Jesus. Now, of course, all of these are based on misunderstandings, mischaracterizations, but all of them have kind of a grain of truth to them. Um, and, And most of us here have been steeped in Christianity. We've at least been a part of Christian culture and have an understanding of Christianity. But imagine, if you will, someone who has never heard of Christianity, who don't know what Christianity is all about, walking into a worship service where we are taking communion, where we are taking the Lord's Supper, chances are it would be pretty shocking to you. Uh, for instance, we might sing songs that will ask the question, what can wash away my sin? And the answer is nothing but the blood of Jesus. Okay? One of the communion hymns that I like is a song that talks about a fountain that washes away all of our guilty stains. And what is that fountain filled with? blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Okay, That sounds like a beautiful song until you get to that part. And then all of a sudden you go hmm, I wonder what that's all about. And you might think that well it's because we're modern people Uh, ancient people talked about this kind of thing all the time. There were sacrifices and you know when we kill animals generally it's in a meat packing plant or something like that. You know unless you're a hunter you don't tend to do that. So we don't see blood, we don't make sacrifices like that, but it was a common thing in ancient times, and so people were comfortable with this kind of language. But actually, Even ancient people weren't very comfortable with it either. If you go to John chapter 6, there's a conversation that happens between Jesus and the crowd. Now, what was happening at the time was there was a large crowd that was following Jesus around. And the crowd was just growing and growing and growing. And just like it often happened, that as the crowd grew, it seemed inevitable that Jesus would say something really weird or really challenging that would thin out the crowd. And that was the case in John chapter 6. So this crowd is growing and growing, and then all of a sudden, Jesus says this. He says, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Now, how would you respond if I got up here and I started talking like that? Okay. Well, here's here's what they did. Uh, John 6:66. 6, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Interesting and probably even a little bit understandable. So clearly, this was hard teaching, even for ancient people, but there is no getting around the fact that the central act, that the central truth of Christianity is that Jesus died, he shed his blood, and he had a broken body for us so that we could be forgiven. And so today, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, and hopefully we can gain a little bit more of an understanding and a greater appreciation Uh, for this act that we do so often. So if you're not already there with me, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 14, the passage that Molly read earlier, and uh, we'll take a look at the story where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Now let's start at verse 12, and this is what it says. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread... When it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now, let's just stop right there. As you read the Gospels, uh, one of the things that you should always assume is that Jesus didn't do anything by accident. Uh, And even uh, at kind of another level, you should always assume that the biblical writers didn't write anything by accident. Now, think about it. Mark was writing about the most important person ever to live, and he's writing a memoir of his life, and he does so in 16 short chapters, which means that he's got to be kind of efficient in what he writes. And so everything that he writes is very intentional. It's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, every single bit of it is packed with significance. Okay? Now, let me give you some examples from somewhere else, and we're going to go to the book of Matthew, uh, and, uh, and we're going to do this because it's very ob- Matthew makes it very obvious what's, what's happening here. Uh, the point of the book of Matthew is to point out to his readers not just that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of Israel. It's the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to be, and so Jesus' life and all of the events of Jesus' life are a recapitulation of the Israel story. Let me give you some examples. First of all, after Jesus was born, his family went to Egypt to escape persecution, okay? But he came back after a time just like, it, just like uh, Israel went to Egypt for 430 years before they came back to the promised land, Okay. When Jesus started his ministry, he went into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted, just like Israel was in the desert for 40 years, and they were tempted there. When Jesus came back from the wilderness, he was baptized in the Jordan River, just like Israel went through the Red Sea and went through the Jordan River to get back into the Promised Land. When Jesus started to form his church, he started with 12 disciples, why did he start with 12 disciples? Well, because it's the 12 tribes of Israel and the church is the continuation of Israel. Okay? The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 is given by Jesus as the new law. Well, where was the old law given? It was given on the mountain. And, uh, and, uh, and Jesus even makes this connection explicitly when he starts his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And then he goes on and he preaches the, the Sermon on the Mount right? So all that is to say is if you read with your eyes open, then you'll be able to see things, the things that Jesus does and says are continually pointing back to the story of Israel, okay? Now, back to Mark chapter 14. Jesus could have taught about the Lord's Supper. He could have instituted communion uh, at just about any mealtime that they had. Anytime they had bread and wine, which was almost every meal, he could have taught about this. But instead, He chose to do it during the Passover meal. Now, why did he do that? Well, let's take a look at the Passover for a minute. Okay, so if you will, turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. This is where the Passover is actually instituted. Now, a little bit of background as you're turning there. Uh, Israel had been in Egypt for 430 years, and the vast majority of that time, they were slaves. They didn't start out that way, but, uh, but after a while, uh, when, when the pharaohs started to forget about Joseph and started to forget about who Israel was, they eventually enslaved them. And the people of Israel started to cry out, and God heard their cries, and so God called Moses to go to Pharaoh and to get them out of there. And so he went to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was understandably hesitant to release a large, a significant portion of his national workforce. Uh, But God insisted, and the way he insisted was by sending plagues, ten in all. Uh, The first nine didn't work, and so the last one was sort of the nuclear option, I guess what you would call And it was to kill the firstborn of every household that didn't have the blood of a lamb sprinkled on the doorposts of the house. But before he does that, God speaks to Israel and he says that if they do this certain thing, then their firstborn will be spared and this is what it is. He gives them some specific instructions. He says, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this uh, of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep. Or the goats. And then it goes on and gives a lot more instructions, and we don't have to go through all of them. You can read it, it's, it's right there in, uh, in Exodus. Uh, but you can, you can uh, let's jump down to verse 12 here. And this is what he says. He, he explains what happens then. He says, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. This blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. All right. And so this is the way that God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt. And for the rest of their existence, God wanted them to remember this moment. Okay. And how were they to remember? By every year recreating that night that God brought Israel out of Egypt. And then they would have a week-long feast of, of unleavened bread. All right? And then we get to verse 14 here, and this is what he says. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Okay? Now, a lot of people mistakenly believe that religion or ritual, is just about doing something so that you can be accepted by God. And maybe in some religions that's the case, but it's not the case in Christianity. For Christianity, we do rituals so that we can remember. Okay? And just like for the Jewish people, it was all about remembering. And this remembering of uh, the Passover would do a number of different things. Okay? The first thing it would do is, is it would help to remind them of who they were. See, every Passover would remind them that they were once slaves. They were once powerless. They were once helpless. They were once at the mercy of a foreign king in a foreign land. And if they were ever tempted to think that they were something special... That they would do anything, could do anything on their own. Every year the Passover would roll around and it would remind them that they were once slaves in Egypt. That they were once in dire straits. Okay? Now keep in mind that, that the Passover was something that was celebrated generation after generation. And by generations who never actually experienced slavery themselves. Think about that for a minute, okay? You know, if sometimes if we project a, a modernist mindset on on the Passover, there would people, be people who would say, well, why do we need to celebrate the Passover? We were never slaves in Egypt, okay? But that kind of misses the point. See, the point is, is that when we see ourselves, when we think about ourselves, we are not just individuals, that we are a part of a community with a long history, with traditions, with a way of life, with a certain way of looking at the world, uh, 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 at how the world has, has shaped us, okay? And that doesn't mean that we don't act as individuals, but they were a part of a community with a common God, a common history, and a common way of life. And when they would take the Passover together, they were reminded of that history. They were reminded of that community. To remember their story was to remember who they are. Okay? And so they were to remember who they were. The second thing that it does is it helps them to remember what God has done. You see, God is a God who acts in history. Uh, they didn't live the way that they did because of some abstract philosophy or theology. But how they lived was a response to a God who acts in the actual events of history. And of course, knowing this should cause us a a great deal of humility. You see, God would oftentimes remind, in the Old Testament, remind the people of Israel that it's not because of their greatness, it's not because of their obedience that God acted on their behalf, but it's solely because of his gracious character. And so, for instance, we see passages like Deuteronomy 9, verses 6 and 7, where it says... Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. And then, actually, if you keep reading, it just goes on. It lists sin after sin and failure after failure. And it's just saying, hey, listen, I want to let you know that you're receiving these blessings, not because you're anything great, but just because of my grace. And what it always does then is it always reminds them of God's character, like when God is instructing in in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God is instructing parents how to teach their children he says, it says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards, and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's not because of what they did. It was strictly because of what God did. And Passover was a reminder that they serve a great God that loves them and proved it in history. And then the final thing it does is it's not just about remembering the past, but it's about how they live into the future. And like I said earlier, that the religion is not just about the ritual. It's actually about the life. What kind of lives do we live as people and so they weren't called to remember just so they would have a nice ritual to follow, just so they would have a great uh, feast that could result in a lot of nostalgia for people and all of that. But it was to remember who they were and to have an effect on how they lived in the future. And so, for instance, God continually used this reminder that God brought them out of Egypt to instruct them for when they reached the promised land themselves. And, and all of a sudden, when they're in the promised land, now they have power, they have prom- prosperity, and so now he's starting to teach them, here's how you should act when you start to get into this position, the same position that Pharaoh was, for instance, okay, for instance, Exodus chapter 22, verse 21, do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, why? For you were aliens in Egypt, so he ties it back to the past. Okay, You shall not, uh, this is Exodus 23, you shall not oppress an alien, for you know the heart of an alien. Okay, You were once there, seeing you were aliens in the land of Egypt. So remember that and let that uh, matter for how you treat people. Here's one more, Deuteronomy 24. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from that That is why I command you to do this, okay? So he's constantly tying the past. Remember this so you can live differently in the future, okay? Now, let's go back to Mark because that's the reason that we're doing this after all, right? Mark chapter 14. Um, Jesus and his disciples are preparing to eat the Passover meal together, okay? And as Jesus did, he is using it as a reinterpretation of the Old Testament story, or a tradition, to to give them a picture of what he was doing. And the first thing he does is he shows them that what is about to happen to him is actually intentional, that this is not some uh, fate or uh, accident of history. Verse 17, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It is one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. Now what he's doing here is he wants them to know, especially Judas, that he knows what's about to happen. Okay, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be tried, he's going to be unjustly executed, but all of this is not an accident, that he's going willingly. And so this is a conversation for the disciples uh, ahead of time to show them that Jesus is fully aware, he's fully in control of what's happening at this time. And by doing it at the Passover, he's tying these two things together. Verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Okay, so just like the lamb that was killed in Egypt so that people could live, Jesus was the new sacrifice that gives life. And just like the sacrifice of the lambs that freed Israel from Egypt, Jesus is a sacrifice that frees us from our sin, that frees us from the power of the enemy, that keeps us in bondage. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, the central focus is the death of Jesus on our behalf to buy our freedom. Okay, now for us, that freedom comes from the forgiveness of sins. Okay? And Mark, Mark doesn't actually say this in his account, but but Matthew actually ties it in very specifically where he says this, uh, where Jesus says, This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so he's tying the forgiveness of sins in there. Okay? And the Apostle Paul actually makes the same connection when he's teaching about communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says... This, he says, uh, or sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he's describing the gospel, he says, What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Okay, so what we see is all of this coming together, that Jesus as the Passover lamb, Jesus as the sacrifice for sin, the act that reconciles us to God, the act that reconciles us to each other. And so as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper today. Now let's bring it down to our level and think, well, what should it do for us as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper? What kinds of things should we be thinking about? Well, the first is this. Is that the Lord's Supper invites us to remember who we are. Invites us to remember who we are. and, And I think it kind of does this in three ways. Reminds us of three things. First, it reminds us that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. Okay. And there are no exceptions. And I, I know this isn't popular uh, when in a world that tells us that it's not emotionally healthy to tell people that they're not perfect just the way they are. And the problem is, is that when we think that, it's it's based on a lie. And and we start to think of that. And we know, we all know what we are inside. We all know that we have sins and failures and, and all of that. But the Good news of that is that regardless of the fact that all of us are, are sinners, that all of us fail, that God still invites us to be a part of his table. Second, we should remember that when we come to the table, we are all equal. There's no difference. There's no difference according to race or gender or education or socioeconomic status. There is no boasting, uh, nor can there be any wallowing in self-pity because we are in the presence of a God who loves all of us and who receive him. And there is no room for feeling superior or inferior to anyone else because we are all equal at the foot of the cross. So we have to remember that as well. And third, it reminds us that as followers of Jesus, that we are a family. See, when the people of Israel celebrated the Passover, they celebrated as families. If there was anyone who was without a family, they were invited to join the family. Or if there was a family that was too small for a whole lamb, then they would, uh, they would share it with someone else. But in celebrating communion, what happens is, is that our chairs are all pulled up around the same family table because we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And those are the things that we are to remember about ourselves when we come to the table. The second thing is, is that when we come to the table, we're reminded of what Jesus did for us, okay? We remember that what we celebrate, that what binds us together is not an abstract philosophy or a theology, but a real act in history that has real benefit for us, the forgiveness of sins. You see, after Jesus got up from that table, he went to a place called Gethsemane, where he was betrayed by Judas, and he was arrested He was tried before the Jewish Sanhedrin and then brought to the uh, Roman governor Pilate who gave in to the pressure of the Jewish religious leaders and had him flogged and crucified as an enemy of the empire. And now, because of Jesus' sacrifice, the Bible says that we are free from sin, that we are free from fear of death. We're free from the power of of the enemy that keeps us in bondage. And so it's incredibly important that every time we do this, that it's not just an empty ritual, but that when we do this together, that we allow that to sink in, okay? That God acted on our behalf in history, okay? Know that it's real. Know that you're forgiven. Know that through Christ, that you are part of God's family. There is nothing that you have done that is unforgivable. There is no one who is too far gone that is beyond the reach of God of God's grace. And so know that because of the act of God, the act of Christ in history, that you are forgiven. And finally, in participating in the Lord's Supper, it should call us to a new way of life. You see, when we take communion, we're reminded that we are a part of a new covenant. Okay, We're part of a covenant. We are a covenant people. Did you know that? Okay? Jesus says right here in verse 24, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out, for many, through Jesus, we are a new kind of people who live by a new covenant with a new law, the law of Christ that goes beyond the law of Israel. And so the question is, what does that look like? Well, there are lots of places that we could go in Scripture, obviously. Let me just mention a couple. One is Titus 2, 11 through 14. This is what it says. It says, The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good? Okay, So you get a good sense of how we're to live as believers or just read the Sermon on the Mount sometime. That's the new law. That's the new law of the covenant, right? Um, it tells us that as believers that we are the salt of the earth, that we are a city on a hill. And so living according to the new covenant means letting our light shine before people that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. So every time we take the Lord's Supper, we remember that we are sinners, and it allows us to be able to live in humility and gratitude, knowing that whatever we receive, that we don't deserve, but God gives it anyway. Okay? Because we remember that God acted on our behalf. We live as a testimony to God who invites everyone to be a part of the table, to be a part of the family of God. It calls us to testify that there is no one who is too far gone that they cannot come to receive God's grace and forgiveness through Jesus. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna practice the Lord's Supper. Let's have the worship team come forward. And uh, and we're gonna do it uh, by what's called intinction. And uh, that means that, when we take it, you're going to come forward and we have, a, we have a juice here and we've got some bread and we just invite you to tear off a piece and dip it in there and take it. For those of you who don't feel comfortable with that, we do have some of the prepackaged ones and you can just uh, take one of those. For those of, you, those of you who are not able to come forward, uh, Naomi is going to come and she'll have uh, some bread and, uh, and a cup as well. Uh, and she 'll just bring it right to your seat, uh, and you, maybe you can just uh, catch her catch her eye or raise your hand and uh, and do that, but as we 're getting ready to do it i 'll uh, read the invitation. Uh, the worship team is going to sing a song, and you can sing, a, sing along with that, or you can just take the time to reflect on on one of those things that we are to remember okay? one that we are sinners in need of god 's grace, two, that God acted in history so that we could be forgiven, or three that because of the grace that God has given us that we are called to live a new life. You can take the time, if there are sins that you need to confess before the Lord, take the time to do that. And any time while we're singing this song, you can come forward and you can take communion. But you know, do it in whatever you need to do. I just ask that you maybe come, in the, come up the inside aisle and go back on the outside aisle after you have taken communion. So here are the invitation. You who are walking in fellowship with God and are in love and harmony with your neighbors and you who do truly and earnestly repent of your sin and intend to lead a new life following the commandments of God and walking from this time in his holy ways, draw near with faith and take this holy sacrament to your comfort and meekly make your humble confession to almighty God. Now pray this prayer of confession with me that will be up on the screen. And walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this time. And we thank you for this symbol of this ritual that reminds us again of who we are, of what you've done, and who you're calling us to be. And so I pray that today as we do it, may it be for those who have forgotten, may it be a reset, a time for them to remember that when we do this, that we are remembering the death of Jesus Christ and what it did for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be working during this time, that you would be convicting us of sin, that you would be binding us together in unity as your body, and that we would grow in love and appreciation for you and what you did for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.